Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Just this week, the following three stories appeared at virtually the same time. The publishing giant Condé Nast laid off 5% of their workforce, or almost 300 people. The Los Angeles Times, losing almost $50 million a year, laid off 115 people from its newsroom. And Meta, the parent company of Facebook, saw their stock hit an all-time high. Clearly, the media landscape as we once knew it will never be the same. And while the reasons for this are varied and debatable, the results are not. Stories are going uncovered. The mainstream press ignores the harder, difficult stories, and America and democracy are the worse off for it. Today, we're delving into these changes with a critical eye. And joining me is Mickey Huff, a leading voice in media criticism and the fight for a free press. Mickey is the director of Project Censored and the president of the Media Freedom Foundation. He's been at the forefront of exposing unreported stories and advocating for media literacy. His editorial work on Project Censored's annual book highlight the challenges and manipulation in today's media environment. These shifts aren't just corporate footnotes. They represent a transformation in how stories are told and heard and the serious implications for what gets covered and how. In our conversation today, we're going to focus on the State of the Free Press 2004, Project Censored's latest examination of the media. The book goes beyond the headlines to uncover the top 25 most unreported stories of the past year, revealing the impact of corporate and political influence on news reporting from environmental crisis to racial inequality. Mickey's insights are especially pertinent in a time when public trust in media is at a low and his work challenges us to look beyond the surface and question the narratives that are presented to us. It is my pleasure to welcome Mickey Huff here to the program to talk about the State of the Free Press 2004. Mickey, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's an honor to be here. And uh, here we are in 2024. And you were just reading kind of a uh, a depressing ledger list of of more collapsing of our major media institutions. And um, that's kind of how we start out the Andy Lee Roth. And I started out the book this year, State of the Free Press 2024, the annual report from Project Censored, uh, bemoaning the dilapidated state of um, of this industry and the fact that it has created what we call news deserts across the country where 70, some 70 million Americans, one fifth of the population, uh, don't have access to local news, local community news. And that really kind of strikes um, really kind of at the core of what's what's a foul in the democracy, how how our our republic is crumbling. We are lacking access to accurate information. More and more people um, are turning away from news because of lack of trust, like you said. And uh, consequently, this creates a, a, an epistemic crisis. And here we are in another election year when we could argue that we really need access to information. We really need a free press um, more than even normal, which is already extraordinary, Jeff. So you're right. We're in some dire straits, but we also write about some of the hope and uh, the fact that there really are some great intrepid independent journalists doing a stellar job in the public interest. It's just we have to um, have to do a better job of finding them and platforming them, Jeff. That's, that's one of the biggest challenges we have. To what extent, though, 
are there two parties responsible for this problem? I mean, there, there, there's the economic reality of the media business, which is creating this landscape, which has created news deserts, and, and some of that is a legitimate economic problem. Some of it has been created by those who've gotten in the media business, certainly. But there's also been a, a lack of public support of so much of this. While certainly there were news deserts and there are more and more all the time in, in com local communities, we're now seeing this problem filter up to the national scene. And part of that is, is people turning off the news, turning off the information. You're right about that, Jeff. The um, habits of the average American news consumer, let's just pause momentarily while we look at that problematic phrase. Um, how we even talk about this is couched in industrial terms, is couched in uh, production consumption terms. And I think that that also is part of our challenge is that we, we really don't, as a society, many of us don't see the fourth estate journalism, the free press as an integral component of our democratic culture. And, you know, many people in this country have turned away from corporate media or so-called mainstream. I mean, nothing mainstream about six corporations curating and, and controlling what a vast majority of Americans see every day. But they do uh, masquerade under that moniker that they somehow provide the news that that regular Americans need. But, you know, quick cursory coverage of that shows that it's mostly elite coverage um, it's coverage that doesn't involve average workers. It doesn't involve working perspectives. Uh, it involves status quo opinions buttressed by two major corporate back parties. Um, but you're right. You know, you're right about this, that there's and I would say more even than than a couple parties to, uh, to blame here at work. But you're right. The public is is one. And um, I think we talk about this in the beginning of the book too, Jeff, Andy Roth and I. We talk about what if journalism disappeared, and what we mean by that isn't that there aren't great journalistic outlets. Look, even like the LA Times or the New York Times, we don't pretend that these major outlets never report news. We don't pretend that they, they're they never doing quality journalism. That would be false. What we say in our critique is that they consistently miss major stories, and they often have an establishment spin on some of the major things they cover, which is why we need more diversity in a vibrant and truly free press. So when we talk about journalism disappearing, we are actually tacitly pointing a finger at the public because we don't believe that the public is media literate much. Uh, and we don't frankly believe that our class of journalists are much more media literate. We can get into that later. Um, but the issue is, is that many Americans are turning away from the so-called mainstream sources because they really stopped focusing on issues that mattered to everyday Americans. Um, the other issue is that many are going to what are called, um, many are susceptible to what's called news snacking. The theory that somehow because they have these gadgets and they're on social media and they're algorithmically connected to everybody, that the news will somehow find them. And they have trust that these same tech overlords that curate and write these proprietary uh, algorithms somehow will have their best interests at heart at the end of the day. Well, we've clearly shown that that's not not the case and that many Americans are misplacing trust, I think. But that's because they're looking for news sources. And one of the things that we've done at Project Censored since 1976 is we try to showcase what we find to be um, trustworthy news sources, at least one reporter, one story at a time. 
And I know that starts to sound tedious and like work, Jeff, but um, like I said earlier, even you know the most trusted outlets that people will have uh, miss stories or are wrong on occasion. Even some of the alternative outlets that we buttress or that we platform have similar problems. So this gets to the core of what, what it means to be uh, media literate in a critical way. And that means we analyze sources, the, what's behind the headlines. We look at who owns sources and the funding of sources and how advertising impacts reporting. These are This isn't rocket science, by the way. These are things that everyday people in this country could do if they simply learned it. And because media literacy is only required in four states, Jeff, we have a lot of catch-up to do in this area. And here we are in the perfect storm of a collapsing corporate media system that's very biased, team red, team blue, an American public that's largely media and civically illiterate. And we're all marching off to the polls coming up here this spring and this fall. The other part of it is that even some of these great sources and some of the underreported stories that, that you cover in, in State of the Free Press 2024 – there's a limited number of people that are accessing and reading those stories, even stuff that's out there that's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. You're that is completely correct. And that is part of the big challenge is how do we get these different sources um, in front of you know the average person? How do you do that? People are very busy. They're going through their day. They have a lot of different obligations. People um, are often, you know, over half of Americans work check paycheck to paycheck, juggling multiple jobs, caregiving, uh, whether for children or elderly people. It's extraordinary the challenges that people face in the wealthiest country in the world. And one would think that uh, our our country would think news was a valuable public service. And I do think that there have been times in our history where we've we've practiced more of that ethos than now, but not that there's a golden era. But I think that, again, back with the media literacy education, if we can somehow convince people that journalism really matters by showing them what journalism really is, people resonate. When they hear and see a good story and when they hear something that they need to know about, people respond to it. People understand that journalism is important and can change their lives. The unfortunate fact, Jeff, is, is that we're inundated with infotainment, junk food news, news abuse, propaganda, and spin round the clock. And people, quite frankly, are fatigued by it. So they generally try to go and gravitate towards something that they either already understand or makes them feel more at ease or comfortable because going out on a limb and going out and trusting different sources, well, that becomes scary for people. And, you know, over the COVID pandemic, Jeff, that became even a scarier prospect for a lot of people where they didn't know where to go or who to trust. And for some, it became a life and death matter. So this is no small issue. And again, I'll sound like a broken record in our conversation today, but I keep pointing back to the fact that we need rudimentary media literacy education. One of our books, The Media and Me, is a critical media literacy guide for young people that talks about teaching it in early grades so that by the time we get into the upper grades or community college or college of people go there, we're not just unpacking and unlearning and so many things and, and re and deprogramming people. We're actually diving deeper into the challenges that we face as a society among educated people. But again, Jeff, that's a multi-pronged. And when you talked about parties to blame, uh, the parties have multiple sort of areas or, or topics 
where we're to blame for different reasons about the challenges we're now facing. And to your point, there is a generational issue that so many younger potential readers and listeners are turning off to news in, in so many different ways and, and only getting it in these short little bursts, whether it's in social media or, or TikTok or whatever. Well, Jeff, if you can't beat them, join them. Guilty as charged. Um, we, uh, consummate critics of the big tech platforms, deplatforming, shadow banning, um, exclusivity, uh, you know, we've critiqued big big tech and social media or what we call anti-social media to the hilt. Um, yet, uh, you can hypocritically find us on TikTok or Instagram uh, because that is where we are getting these messages out to a younger demographic. We have younger people working with us that are helping translate this kind of um, well, just basically what we're doing is we're just tell telling stories and translating this kind of muckraking journalism to these different platforms. And while the platforms themselves are incredibly problematic uh, because they are censorious and they are algorithmically driven and they do have a lot of problems associated with them. There are times, Jeff, when you know, I have a, a national radio show, terrestrial radio show, never know how many people are actually listening. We're on 50 some stations, but within an hour. We can have a person on TikTok or Instagram get thousands of views, and it leads people to a source, a news source. I mean, and at the end of the day, isn't that at least in part what we're trying to do is tell the story, to get out the word? Um, I do feel like at times we're making bargains with the devil when we're working with these kinds of platforms because we well know their limitations and problems and biases. But if the name of the game is getting the word out, and to hear marginalized voices and to get people to understand more deeply what's happening around us um, because we can't trust what's on television and most people don't read past the fourth grade level. Um, you know, I realize that we're also pandering to the idiocracy here in another way, Jeff. But uh, I think that there's some there are positive uses for these technologies. And there there are people in other countries that have solely relied on some of these tech platforms for um, uprisings and social movements. So we're, we're not really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm probably not allowed to say that anymore. Um, but you know, we're trying to selectively do what we can and utilize the tools we have to reach as many people as possible so people can understand what journalism is and understand the power of it and the power of this kind of storytelling. Maybe a degree to which the people will start demanding that major networks and outlets produce more of it just like they did 100 years ago in the golden era of muckraking journalism. There's also the issue of making people understand, whether it's young or old alike, that, that some of these issues do have a direct personal impact on them. And I think that's what we fail to do in many cases. You know, uh, that's a really big issue too, Jeff, and that's looking at the journalists. Who is writing the story? Who is the audience um, I mean, it's so diffused in some of these platforms and publications where I can understand people having, um, you know, like a scatter effect, you know, just scattershot effect where they're just trying to throw anything out to get any attention about a serious or important story. Um, but I think that you're right about that. And, you know, the one I'm teaching semester just started here for spring 2024. You know, whether I'm teaching history or journalism or social justice or something related or political economy, I always try to find a hook with the students where there's part of the story that's about them. 
And there's always something that's about about them in the things that we teach in the the social sciences and the humanities. And I think some of the top stories that we cover each year in the book, Jeff, I think that that's part of the power of the journalists that write those certain stories is that they they are compelling. They are personal without being tabloidized, but you know they speak they speak to people on a human level. And they give people an opportunity reading it to put themselves in the place of people in the stories if they're not already the center of the stories. And that's the other thing about the kind of stories that we look at that corporate media tend to overlook is that in the alternative and independent press, Jeff, it's marginalized groups and people that tend to be the center of the stories and the teller of the stories. They're not going through other filters. They're not going through um, you know, other elite sort of megaphones and so forth. And so that kind of journalism is different, and it tends to speak to everyday people in more successful ways, in my view. But sometimes there's an overemphasis even on, on the marginalized stories because there are so many people that are not on the margins that also are, are not seeing these stories, are not consumers of the news, that, that need to be spoken to through these stories. Yeah, also a very true statement and another part of the challenge we face in terms of audience, in terms of reaching people. Um, I think that, you know, it's 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 this always resonated with me um, years ago. Ralph Nader, uh, of course, everyone that probably knows Ralph Nader. I hope they, they would. The great consumer rights advocate. Um, Nader said that, you know, he wished that all the newsrooms in the country would have a, a copy of the annual censored book lying around the newsroom so that on some alleged slow news day, instead of covering some tripe or gossip or uh, some sports story or something else, that they'd randomly pick the top 25, pick a story and find something that, gee, they really just didn't cover the past year. Yet, that story is still significant. That story still has legs. And, you know, as Andy Lee Roth likes to say um, at the project, uh, going back and quoting Bob Hackett, Hackett from uh, Newswatch Canada, says one of the issues that we see that turns people away from news, and it's a big problem, is that a lot of our news stories focus myopically, you know, on, on something that's wrong or something that pops up, something that catches our eye. But what, what they often fail to do is they fail to connect the dots and cover things in a big enough way or a macro enough way that they fail to show what goes wrong every day, almost invisibly, whether it's wanton spending on war and destruction, whether it's uh, under-supporting local schools, um, you name it, across the board. Uh, our, in, our journalism as an industry has become so connected to other elite establishments that it seems that many of these trials and tribulations have become invisible background noise, even to the fourth estate. And that's why independent journalists really help pierce through that kind of a bubble. And they tell a story that has the power to attract people that think they're bored of the news or that there's nothing new to learn. We just have to try to broaden people's news horizons and habits. Talk a little bit about these stories of the 25 stories that, that you single out a significant number of them are, are environmental stories. Yeah, um, hard not to notice, though good of you to notice, Jeff, that many of the stories, um, over, I think a third, or about a third, yeah, over a third, have to do with something wrong with our contaminated environment, whether it's, you know, the top story is pretty riveting. 
I mean, I guess it could just blow by forever chemicals in rainwater, a global threat to human health. Um, it rains everywhere. I mean, except where it isn't, I guess, right now. But theoretically, rain is everywhere. And we've contaminated our environment, our oceans and our air, the degree to which these forever chemicals that don't break down in our environment are part of the ecosystem. They rain back down on us. There is no way we can avoid these so-called PFAS uh, type chemicals. Um, we've been writing about them and they've been covered for years, um, but more and more and more studies are coming out showing how these are linked to cancer. This is a worldwide phenomenon that future generations won't be able to escape. Um, toxic chemicals continue to go unregulated in the United States. I mean, this feels like a list of stories, Jeff, that could be from the 1970s or 80s when Project Censored was founded. Um, there's a story, of course, um, about carbon offset with rainforest being mostly a worthless endeavor, despite people's hope behind it. Again, a story about how we kind of put, you know, we put a lot of hope behind certain initiatives that don't actually really put a dent in the problem. You know, one of the bigger problems we face with the climate is that the U.S. military is the largest polluter on the planet, yet is exempt from environmental regulations. You know, we've been writing about that story for years. There's various incarnations of it, you know, that show up on the list all the time, Jeff. So, yes, you're right to notice tribal towns are being forced to relocate due to the climate crisis. Fossil fuel money has been skewing university climate research and energy research for decades still happening. We could go on and on. I mean, Andy Lee Roth and Steve Masick just had a great piece uh, published not long ago in Truthout that highlighted just the climate crisis stories, Jeff, and showed what an abysmal job the corporate media do around these issues. And I'm saying that even though they have vastly improved their coverage about the climate in the last several years, but they're still really behind the curve there. Um, you can see that many Americans, um, you know, who are pushed into these corrals of like, well, recycle that plastic and, um, you know, get your electric car and do your part for the economy. Again, those that's all well and good. And it's important for people to you know live in ethical, ecological ways. But the notion that somehow the average person down the street is offsetting what's happening to the climate is balderdash. Uh, to coin it, to, to go back in history and coin a term the FCC hasn't banned. Um, it's just nonsense. But we don't know that because our corporate media does a bad job of connecting the dots. And of course, given that they're funded by these fossil fuel companies, uh, they're funded by the military industrial complex, we can't really turn to a lot of these outlets and expect them to tell us, as George Saldi said in the mid 20th century, what's really going on. And that's a big part of the problem, Jeff. Talk a little bit about the other areas where there is a larger concentration of unreported stories. We've obviously been talking about the environmental area, but there are some other specific areas where these stories tend to, to grow. Yeah, I mean, obviously, anything around foreign policy over the years, um, that tends to, to, to draw attention among our judges because the corporate media here generally line up behind the defense and state departments and uh, both of the political parties, most of whom support uh, wars, whether it's what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Gaza uh, with Israel. 
Um, you know, one of the things that we see on the list year after year, Jeff, and although they may not be a bunch of these stories, but it's a recurring theme, is that the corporate media don't do a great job of telling us how they don't do a great job. <laughs> In other words, um, stories about the media or about how media tend to censor or function or how media choose to cover stories, those every year there's at least one or two of these kinds of stories. Last year, of course, there was a story about the Disinformation Governance Board. This year, there's a story about Twitter files and the government pressure on social media platforms. And, and by the way, before people start, you know, Team Red and Team Bluing this, we've been covering these kinds of stories of collusion with government agencies and media for, for decades. It's, it's Republicans and Democrats that do these things. Um, and that's what people very quickly like to, for, you know, choose to forget that it's somehow one side that's doing it. And at Project Censored, we think that the press is too important to play politics with. We think that it's wrong if there are any prior restraint issues, and we also oppose censorship by proxy. We oppose government agencies using proxies to influence private media sector decisions to run certain stories or spike certain stories because we think it has a very negative impact on our democratic republic and it has negative ramifications for our institutions chiefly manifest in public trust decay this trust decay that we see across the spectrum from government to media to other to education this is part of the crisis we face and in order to rebuild that we also have to rebuild the notion that people can find accurate news and information People can make a difference in their local communities through democratic grassroots activism, and we really need to kind of reclaim that, and we really need to reclaim that kind of narrative, Jeff. Unfortunately, what we see in the corporate media is an outsourced narrative where people are barely showing up even at primaries, and some candidates are winning not even being on the ballot. We have a sort of a phone-in, a phone phoning in to the idiocracy, as it were, this year. So we're not off to a great start in the election year, and I think – Again, a lot of this is going to hinge more and more on media coverage and whether or not the media will decide if they're going to cover not just themselves and their own foibles, but really look behind the scenes, behind the headlines, behind the candidates and tell the public what's really going on. And of course, that all is is impacted by and brings us back to where we started with some of these layoffs and, and what's going on, even in, in the corporate media. It's It's impacted by the economics of it. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And as you see, it, around and around we go, right, on that spiral, which is now going downward with all these layoffs and letting go of people in newsrooms, even in the tech platforms, which I don't consider journalistic or newsrooms. But that is where over half of Americans are getting information, which is another issue with media literacy. But we do have this crisis in journalism where because of these economic pressures and models, because our, our society can't seem to deem it. Um, significant enough through Congress to establish a robust public media. Victor Picard, Free Press, other media scholars and groups across the country have long called for a robust influx of government support for public media in, in the public interest. And you could get that started with five, six billion dollars and have a fairly robust system. They they claim 25 to 30 billion dollars would create an extraordinary public interest uh, media system in the United States. 
And while that certainly sounds like a lot of money to you, to me, to others, uh, Jeff, we're spending $800 billion on the military, over a trillion when you add other extenuating expenses, intel, et cetera, to suggest we somehow, in an era where the government is alleging that we all must fight disinformation and the media is with them, the best way to fight disinformation and misinformation is through critical media literacy education and media in the public interest, transparent ethical journalism in the public interest. We have the means to do it, and we know how. We just don't have the institutional will to do it because maybe shining that bright of a truth spotlight in dark places isn't something that the powers that be truly want in our country, Jeff, which is why we, the people, need to take that power back. Mickey Huff, his new volume is State of the Free Press 2024. Mickey, I thank you so very much for spending time with us today. It's been my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks so much for what you do. It's very important, and uh, it's always great to be in conversation with you. And thank you, and keep up the great work.